continuing in our study and our journey through Acts. Last week, we saw a pivotal event. We saw the conversion of Paul. Um, today, we're going to see Paul's journey. But before I do that, uh, you just go there. I'm going to read a couple of other things for you. You don't need to turn to those places. Uh, the events in that we're going to be in in Acts uh, today cover uh, just a right up, you know, short time after Christ uh, had been here. But in, um, in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, let me read this. Paul talks about something he's going to talk about. We're going to see today in Acts in his time in Damascus. He says this, in Damascus, the ethnarch under Eridus, the king, was guarding the city of, Dama- of the Damascus in order to seize me. And I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and so escaped. So something we're going to read tonight, that's there. And then and I'm going to read from Galatians 1, 18, a couple of verses. Then he says, three years later, I went to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. Did not see any of the other apostles, the sick James, the Lord's brother. Now in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God, I'm not lying, that I went to the region of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy, and they were glorifying God because of me. Now realize, remember, Paul was persecuting the church to the event that he was going to, as much as he could, destroy Christianity. And his persecution of Jews primarily who had come to faith, or who had come to faith, not so much Gentiles, but Jews, they had gone some to escape persecution because there was a movement of persecution to the area of Damascus. And Paul had a letter to seek them out that gave him authority to bring them back to Jerusalem so they could face trial and maybe even execution. And on that way, he was converted by Christ, the appearance of Jesus. He, we see after Luke writes this account in chapter 9, Luke writes two other accounts of Paul's conversion in chapter 22 and 26, this time uh, from Paul's perspective. And so keeping that in mind, that immediately Paul began to share the gospel. People were amazed. He ran into this guy. This guy named Ananias came to help him. Ananias introduced him uh, to the people there at Damascus. And so verse 22 said he's increasing in strength. The Jews lived in Damascus, and he was telling them that Jesus is the Christ. Verse 23 Verse 23, and it follows, fits within the time frame that I was reading to you earlier. When many days had elapsed, as many days would be about three years. But when a long period of time had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with them. In other words, they wanted to kill Paul. Now, it's, it's kind of strange because everything is flipped. From Paul being the man representing the Jews to kill Christians, now Paul was the one being persecuted. And... Um, their plot became known to Saul, that is Paul, and they were watching the gates day and night so they might put him to death. But the disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowered him through a large basket. So we saw that earlier. They had lowered him down through a basket to escape. It was this, this period of time covered about three years. We see that both in 2 Corinthians and then in Galatians chapter 1. And during this time, Paul was fervently preaching the gospel. He was, went to Arabia, uh, which is close by. He had been to some areas. And, and so you, you have this guy who uh, was brilliant. And I can't uh, state enough, you know, there's never been anyone within the Christian faith as smart as Paul. Not when it comes to the things of Jesus. Now, part of it was because he was brilliant as a Jewish 
Pharisee. I mean, he, was, he learned under the greatest teacher of that day, Gamaliel, who we see in Acts from time to time. We, seen, uh, we saw him last fall. Um, and then, you know, we're going to see him take a long period of time. This period is about 13 years. He's going to take probably another 14, or the 14 covers the 13, behind you look at it. But he's, he's going to spend over a dozen years kind of out of the picture. And many believe that it was during this time that Paul just really began to understand the Christian faith. Probably a lot of it uh, through Jesus revealing things to him through the Holy Spirit, maybe through other people helping him. But just as he, be- as he understood the framework of Jesus, he began then to take the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and began to connect all the dots to that. And began to develop the things that would be necessary for him to be able to do the amazing things they did. On Sunday, we're actually looking at, uh, in that series, uh, uh, just a slice, a small section of the very first journey Paul took with Barnabas and some events that happened at Pisidian Antioch. And, and so these things begin to happen. We, 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 we read everything in a vacuum. You know, we just read it, and we don't think sometimes about the period of time that things took to develop. And the time it took to get Paul to where he was going to be um, obviously people in Damascus were weary of Paul. It makes sense. We're going to see in just a minute they were in Jerusalem too. All of that makes sense. But even before Paul was fully accepted by the church, he was being persecuted by those Jews who were not Christians. So he had, he had fellowship and he had protection in the church to some degree, but it was a struggle. If you ever read the story of Martin Luther, it is a fascinating story. Luther rebelled against the Catholic Church. And the Catholics at that time, and the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church was different than it is now, so I don't, there's not, I don't want anybody with Catholic connections to think in any way this is a slander towards the current Catholic Church. It's a different period, I mean, it's a different period of time. But they were trying to kill him. And, and it's amazing how they couldn't get him. They had him on trial. They were trying to do, you know, all sorts of things, uh, you know, the edicts and, uh, and, 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 and trying to, you know, convict him so they could do it legally and all that. And they were trying to do it illegally. And in many ways, like the story of Paul, Luther just kept getting away. The king of the area where he saw the prince of the area where he lived, protecting him for a long period of time, people protecting him. Just against all the odds, he just kept getting away and being protected. And he lived and eventually died, you know, of natural causes, more or less. And so it's amazing to see how God can find ways to work through and how many times people who were once on one side of the issue, or who, or in Paul's case, was anti-Christian. In Luther's case, he was Roman Catholic. And they switched to the other side. The direction or the efforts that are made to persecute them are far more intense than the efforts oftentimes made to persecute people who have always been there. Paul falls into that case. It was recognized the danger and the threat that Paul posed pretty quickly. So we see then in verse 26, he came to Jerusalem. We saw that in Galatians. He was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he was a disciple. Well, that makes sense. He had come from Jerusalem, hadn't been back. In Galatians, we know a period about three years occurred. He, He left. Word had gotten there that he was converted 
I'm imagining at this point, none of the apostle apostles had gone to meeting. I mean, come on. Peter hadn't gone out there. James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of John. Nobody had gone to confirm what was happening in Paul. And so there, there was a disconnect to some degree, and we understand that, and, and, and that makes sense. I can see why there would be some reluctance. They were told by Luke, but there was this guy named Barnabas. And Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles. And he described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, I am not sure if Barnabas had already had a prior relationship with Paul. Maybe Barnabas had been and gone and encountered him. But Barnabas is this guy. Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. I remember, some of you remember that thing called the Living Bible? Did you ever have a Living Bible? When you were, like I, when I was a youth, we all had Anybody still have a Living Bible? Yeah, all of you that have, yeah, like that are my age or older. Uh, and the, do you want to know what the Living Bible called Barnabas? Anybody know? This is your one chance you can speak out. Barney the Preacher. He's got that. So I thought, man, that's the worst paraphrase in the history of the English Bibles. That Barnabas became Barney the Preacher. Who? Nobody wants to be called Barney the Preacher. It's just not what you want to be called. And, and so Barnabas, though, was this unique figure. Along with Ananias, Barnabas brings Paul. Now, later on, we're going to see this uh, Sunday sermon a little bit. Barnabas and Paul take the first mission journey together. Do you understand there was a time when Barnabas was a key player and a major figure in the life of the church? Sometimes when you're reading through the New Testament and names pop up, and maybe they pop up several times, and maybe they're not mentioned a bunch, but when they're mentioned, it's really important. Sometimes you spend a little time thinking about them. At some point, maybe some of these guys pop up you know, from here and there. Barnabas is one of those guys. And just see the important role that Barnabas had in the early church. When Paul and Barnabas take that first journey, Barnabas is the lead dog. He's the main guy. Paul passes him pretty quick and becomes the main spokesman. But Barnabas is one of these amazing people. Now notice... And I think this is important in the church today, and our church doesn't have trouble with this. But Paul, they had a hard time accepting Paul. Now, I understand Paul had persecuted the church, and I get it. I get it. But think for a moment, and I think back over my career and my life in ministry and, and just churches, how many times I've had church members and people who attended my church have a difficult time accepting somebody into our fellowship? Some of you have gone on Remember those days? You may have grown up in areas where certain people weren't even allowed to come into your church. Think for a moment how antithetical that is to the very nature of Christianity. A few weeks ago, Jesus said, love God, love others. And how often we fail to properly love other people. Now, I don't think there's any issue in our church with that. I don't. But I always hope that there are people in our church who go out of their way to welcome other people. We have a lot of folks, you know, in welcome areas. And sometimes you see people wearing the lanyards and the orange tags and uh, the orange lanyards with the tags. And we have some people who are 
um, whose job is to really look for people who look like they're lost and, and are struggling and all those things. Because the one thing we want to do is help people feel connected to the rest of us. Some of you know this very well because you're fairly new here. It's pretty tough to come and walk into this place and necessarily feel connected. If you don't know anybody, it's always weird being the stranger. I go, you know, I don't visit many churches anymore. When I'm gone on Sunday, I just watch, I watch our guys. And, and uh, they, they really do a good job. Uh, you know, yeah, you do a good job. Yeah. <laughs> Better than nothing. So, you know, I look at it. So, uh, just sorry, I just couldn't. I really look forward to seeing you in the members only jacket in a couple of weeks, dad, you know, telling the dad jokes and, and all of that. But, you know, I watch our guys because our guys do, a, I mean, not Brian, Joe, Troy, um, Steve, they do, a, they do a phenomenal job. They really, they're fantastic. Um, but how many times I've gone into other churches and just, it's weird, you know, it's weird for me because I don't belong. I don't belong with them. They have their own culture and their way of doing things. You know, I always try to sit in the back. Uh, close to a door because if the service stinks, I'm out. I mean, I am. If it's bad, I'm gone. I am gone so fast. And I can't tell you how many times nobody makes an effort to make me feel like I belong. Barnabas, this is a unique case. I get it. I get it. Paul's different. Barnabas makes sure that they understand this cat belongs to them. He is one of them. And he was with them, moving about freely. He was in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. So Paul begins to preach in Jerusalem. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews, but they were attempting to put him to death. When the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away back home to Tarsus. Now, so the Hellenistic Jews are the Jews that put Stephen to death. Paul, if you remember, was giving hearty approval when that happened. And now he is arguing with the very people he was once. He went back to his people in Jerusalem to argue with them. And he was so good at it, they decided they needed to put him to death. And so the church got him out of there. He goes back to his home of Tarsus, where he will spend the next 12, 14 years, whatever it is. He goes back there and will not reemerge till about 48 AD. Now, you know, they're going to condense all that time because we're in chapter 9. He reemerges in a couple of cha- few chapters. But the important thing is to understand, Paul immediately begins doing what Paul does, and then goes away. Now, undoubtedly, when Paul went to, back home to Tarsus, he kept preaching and sharing all that stuff. But, but nothing of significance from a recorded in the scriptural standpoint. But notice what it says in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord. Bible sticking together. In comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So there was relative peace. There had been turmoil. Now there was relative peace. Notice what it says though. In Judea, Samaria, Galilee. Now in Acts 1.8. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come be my witnesses. You'll start in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and then to the rest of the world. And Galilee was you know, part of that area. So what we're being told is, in the area where they were going to start, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the church had grown significantly, 
it was increasing, it was flourishing. And there was relative peace. For whatever reason, there was a period of rest. This is a transition verse. Now, we're going to see some things in this rest of this chapter about Peter. And then in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see Peter in Acts 10 with the vision and also uh, Peter uh, going into the home of a Gentile. So what's going to happen now? Well, we've had Gentile converts. Uh, we saw that in chapter 8. There's a shift going to go on now in Acts. In the middle of chapter 9, there's, I mean, really chapter 9 starts with the conversion of Paul. He was going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Now there is a shift that's going to go on into the movement towards Gentiles. And it's going to deal with Peter. Before we leave Paul, just a reminder of a couple of things. Anybody can come to Jesus. We should never assume that there are people who can't come to faith. If Paul can come to faith, anyone can and we should never give up on people. Now, sometimes, you know, the old, you know, casting pearls, you know, you know giving what are sacred to dogs, pearls before swines. I, I get all that. Sacred, you know, you've got to be careful. But it doesn't mean we should ever give up on people. Sometimes, you know, I'll quit sharing the faith with someone who's continually rejected it, move away, but I'll still pray for them because I'm not going to ever give up. And someone like Paul is, is the reason why we should never give up. Because you never know when someone will be at a point in their life when they're ready for Jesus. And at that point, they may rely on and they may go back to the things that we shared or the things that we said. We may have some part of their journey. I never worry about seeing the results of my ministry. I know that in the lives of people, I am just one part of the journey. I don't even know. Sometimes I plant a seed. A lot of times I do a little watering. Sometimes I'm there for the harvest. I never worry about my role. I never worry whether I see people come to faith as a result of anything I do. I get asked that from time to time. I've never worried about it. And I don't because it is a journey in everyone's life. And I know that God puts me in their journey. And it's the same thing with you. You don't know what impact you have with a coworker or a neighbor or anyone. You may never see it. You may get to heaven and say, man, what are you doing here? And they'll look at you and say, I don't know, what are you doing here? You know, you know maybe like both of you may be shocked, you know. But you don't know what part you have in their life. You don't know what you did along the way to help them on the journey. So never fully give up on people. There, there are people that I look at that, that, that I, I hope there's a chance I can share Jesus with them. Sometimes I say, you know, there's a person I know, and, and I've just said, Lord, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to share Jesus with them effectively until the person they're married to dies. I said, just, just, I mean, that's, that is harsh, but that's reality. Because their spouse is constantly interfering with them coming to Jesus. And I think about that sometimes, and I said, I don't know how to pray about that. But all I'll do is say, God, this one day, give me a shot. Give me one more shot, just one more chance, one more, whatever that is, just give me one more. And, you know, I just want to be sure that all of us understand we're a part of people's journey, a lot of journeys. Your kids, your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, your neighbors, whatever part it is, people you work with, you're there. Anyone can come to Christ. And here's the amazing thing. You don't know that the person that you help come to Jesus won't one day be an unbelievable follower of Jesus who will influence the lives of hundreds of people. I mean, Paul, you know, Barnabas and Ananias didn't know for sure what Paul would become. 
They had, they, I don't think, I mean, God probably said, hey, he's going to do a good job. Like, okay, I, I trust you, God. But nobody understood that Paul would be the one man more than anyone else who would take the teachings of Jesus and shape Christian thought. Understand this. Paul took Jesus, and we read in the Gospels, and his teachings shaped Christian thought and theology unlike anyone else in a systematic way. And Paul was brilliant at that. And no one knew that at the time. That's what happened. You don't know what's going to happen in people's lives. So with that, Peter comes back on the scene. And Peter does two miracles that are similar to miracles we see Jesus did. Luke makes that known. And uh, let me just say this, because we're going to cover those miracles pretty quick. Acts teaches us that the apostles, including Paul, did miracles. In In the Bible... There are four periods of what we would call miracles that, that they're concentrated. Two in the Old, two in the New. In the Old Testament, Moses did a lot of miracles. He did nature miracles, the plagues, you know, parting the Red Sea. And a lot of those have to do with God using him to do things that somehow are natural, but in a supernatural way. Like, they had, they had plagues of locusts before. It wasn't the first one, but what Moses did it at a certain point at a certain time for a certain reason, so it was miraculous. And the other time was Elijah and Elisha. Those two guys, you see a lot of miracles. And their miracles were like, you know, big dog, time stuff, you know. Bringing someone back to life, you know. There was water that was poisonous, making it good. Axe heads floating. I mean, that stuff. That was amazing. Those, those, now there's a couple other places you see them, but those are the two concentrations. In the New Testament, miracles are centered around, obviously, Jesus and immediately following the apostles. And I would say, closing out the life of the apostles, those type of miracles have ceased. That The miracles were signs. They were pointers before they had the New Testament, before they understood the work of the Holy Spirit, especially among the apostles. They did things. These miracles convinced people that Jesus was real. Now we have the New Testament and the Holy Spirit working in people's lives. I'm not saying there's never been another miracle done since this. I'm not saying that at all. Because I, I know there have. But what I'm saying to you is they're not normative. You can't go and say, well, you know, there's this guy over this, wherever this place is, and he does miracles all the time. Yeah, I don't think so. I just doubt it. I'm not saying he's never done one. I just, don't, I just don't see it. And why not? Because that's not what we are led to believe in the work of the New Testament, that the way the gospel is shared. The purpose of miracles wasn't to heal them. The purpose of the miracles was to point them to Jesus. Miracles were signs. They were ways of saying. Did they demonstrate mercy? Yes. Did they demonstrate love? Yes. Jesus, he said, did miracles because he had compassion. And sometimes he didn't do miracles because they didn't have faith. He still had compassion. They didn't have faith. So there's, you got to take all that into consideration with whatever your theology and miracles are. You got to see all the picture. There again, don't say, the pastor said, no miracle has ever been done, never will be done. I'm not saying that saying that it's not normative. And what you see on Facebook that people call miracles aren't miracles. 
The birth of a child isn't a miracle. Now, it may be a child that was supposed to die at birth and survived is a miracle. That may be a miracle. I've seen that. I know that. I believe that. I've known kids that that's a miracle of their life. Absolutely. Because God did something that no one else can do. A miracle is when God acts in a supernatural way. So I believe that. But, you know, when I remember someone said their, their kid and, their, and her husband were going to get a divorce. It looked bad. But they worked it out, and it was a miracle. And I wanted to say, no, it wasn't a miracle. It was, it was God working? Yeah. God working isn't a miracle. God works all the time. Doesn't God work in your life every day? That's not a miracle. That's normative. The Holy Spirit indwells in you and works. No, there were lost people who were going to get divorced and their marriage works out. Not a miracle. I get what they were saying. I didn't want to crush them. But, you know, I, I wanted to, but I didn't want to. I didn't crush them. What I'm trying to say to you is for you to understand Make a distinction between God working, which is real and common in our lives, and the miraculous, which is God intervening to violate and break the laws he created to do something in a supernatural way. It's two different things. Make sure you understand if miracle is correct. Sometimes your, your definition of miracle is what I would say, weak. With that in mind... See what Peter did. See the result of what happened, and you'll know why miracles matter. Peter was traveling through all these regions. He came to a town, came down to the saints who were at Lydda, in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, who was bedridden for eight years. He was paralyzed, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Make up your bed. I mean, get up and make your bed. Immediately got up, and all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him. And what does it say? They turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. Who wants to be called Dorcas? When I was growing up, Park Hills Baptist Church, there was a lady Sunday school class. Some of you had, remember when Sunday school classes were named after biblical people? The men were the Baracus, you know, and there was a ladies class always called the Dorcas. They were always old. Mike, you're laughing like you remember those days, right? Yeah, Mike knows them. God, the dork. Why couldn't they just call themselves the Tabitha class? That would have been so bad. And this woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened that at that time she fell sick and she died. I'm saying she's dead. And they had washed her body and laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, uh, the disciples, having heard about Peter, was there. Sent two men, imploring him, "Do not delay. Come to us." Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the window, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with him. So she did a lot of sewing. And Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, "Tabitha, arise." And she opened her eyes, and she saw Peter. She sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, calling the saints and widows. He presented her alive, and it became known all over Joppa. And many people believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tenor named Simon. Notice the purpose of these two miracles was so that people would come to faith in Jesus. Do you understand? That's the purpose of doing these. Did he have compassion? Absolutely. Did he love and care for her? Absolutely. Without question. 
And should our working in people's life be motivated by love and compassion every time it should be? We should look at people and, be, and hurt for them and be filled with compassion, just like Jesus was, just like the apostles. And the most important thing you can ever do in that person's life is help them come to faith. Now, you may, that day, you may need to feed them. At that moment, you may just sit down and need to pray with them and help them. In that moment, you may need to listen to them, pour their heart out about how bad their marriage is. I get it. But ultimately, they're going to face Jesus one day. And more than being fed, and more than anything else, they need to come to Christ. Jesus could have ended poverty. He did not. And Jesus had the power to end all wars. And he did not. He had the opportunity to tell us to go and bring social justice throughout the whole world and help people be fed and be clothed and to never suffer again and I'll be with you to the end of the earth. He did never said that. He said, you go and you make disciples out of them. You love them. Absolutely, you love them. But your job is to go and help them come to faith. He could have, but he didn't. Don't ever misunderstand what our purpose is. Don't ever think we don't love people. We do. Don't ever think that we don't minister to them. We do, always. But primarily, we have to help them come to faith. And with that, I'll look forward to seeing you on Sunday.